Welcome to Logos Ish Season 2. In addition to our normal topics, we're going to be doing a special series of episodes that are going to do a deep dive into ongoing conversations about the future of the United Methodist Church, titled UM Watch. This is a topic that is near and dear to the hearts of our hosts, and we are excited to share it with you. The UMC is the largest mainline Protestant denomination in the United States, and our kickoff episode features Helen Ride of the Reconciling Ministries Network, reflecting on the role that mainline Protestant groups play in the United States and LGBTQ inclusivity. Hey everybody, welcome back to Logos-ish. This is John. I am joined once again by my co-hosts Brian and Garrett, and Sarah should be joining us a little later in the podcast, hopefully. She sadly had to step out of the room at the last minute to handle something real quick. But we are live, we are in charge, we are psyched. None of us have seen snow in the past 24 hours, which is significant since it seems like half the country has seen snow and most of what we talk about in the first two minutes of this podcast is the weather. Isn't that weird? How are you guys doing? I'm hard pressed now to figure out how to introduce myself without talking about the weather, John. So thank you. But I'm doing awesome here. Uh, it is Ash Wednesday and we're, we're preparing for that. So we're, we're excited uh, down in Florida. And uh, for me, while it is Ash Wednesday, a day when we remember our mortality and our need for repentance, I'm also counting down that it's four days till vacation. So I'm super excited about that. We're all clearly very focused on work right now, is what you're saying, Brian. <laughs> uh, totally. 100%. I'm glad I pre-recorded all of my stuff that I need to do for like the next week. Awesome, awesome. Well, let's go ahead and get started with our podcast. I would be remiss, though, if I did not first invite you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast wherever you got it, wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, we also officially now have a website, logosish.com, and a blog to go with it with some okay writing. You know, it's not stellar writing, but it's okay writing. I would read it once in a while. So check that out at logosish.com. You can also find our episodes there as well. And we have some more stuff coming down the pike. But our guest today is Helen Ride. They are a home missioner and organizer with Reconciling Ministries Network. Helen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great to be with you all. It's great to have you. So Helen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Certainly can. So I am, I'm originally from the United Kingdom. You might be able to tell, it's slightly not American accent. Um, I grew up in the southeast of the United Kingdom uh, in a town close to Canterbury, Kent, uh, which obviously is a deeply formative area in terms of the spiritual roots of our faith. Came over to the United States in 1998, came over as a, uh, a youth worker, so residential social worker really and have been living here since. I was 16 years in Massachusetts and I've been living in North Carolina now for nearly seven years. My, you want a little bit about my faith journey, all that good stuff too, would that be good? Okie doke. So um, I was sprinkled into the Church of England at a very young age. That was when I was, I'm 55, so when I was born, that was still common practice. I don't know if it is as common practice nowadays in England. The English spiritual scene, Christian church scene is so very different from this country. So, but in those days that was still pretty common. So I got christened 
into the Church of England. And then really my family were not churchgoers, so we didn't really go anywhere for quite some time. My parents ended up getting divorced when I was 10 or 11 years old and my stepmom was a regular churchgoer. So we started going to the local Church of England again. It's what I would call a smells and bells church. So high liturgy, all the robes, all the candles, all the incense being uh, thrown around. And I got confirmed there around about the age of 13. And then about the age of 18, three things happened. Two major American evangelists decided that it was time England got saved. So Billy Graham uh, came over and did uh, Mission England. And Louise Palau did a thing called Mission to London. And so I went to see both of those folks preach. And then a friend of mine gave me a book called The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson, which you are probably all too young to even maybe have heard of. I'm getting blank looks. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so David Wilkerson was a Pentecostal preacher from Pennsylvania who got sent by God or compelled by God to go into the inner city of New York uh, and work with gang members. And um, he wrote a story about it. And this, the book is called The Cross and Switchblade. And the thing that that did for me was it translate, it transformed my idea of what it meant to be a Christian from a sort of get up on a Sunday morning and go and do the Sunday morning thing to something that the idea of Jesus actually telling people to, to do something and them doing it was like foreign to me at that point. So it was a it was a it was a shift. There was a shift in how I understood my faith. In those days, I would have said I got born again. I wouldn't really use that language anymore. I don't understand my faith in that way now. But I I I had a transformation in my understanding of my faith. I then started several years in non-denominational evangelical charismatic churches, and at about almost exactly the same time realized something that had been brewing for quite a long time which was that I was gay and as I like to say that was awfully bad timing because if you know anything about non-denominational evangelical charismatic churches those are not places that you want to hang out if you're looking for affirmation for a sexual orientation that isn't decidedly straight so I went through basically 13 or 14 years of uh, what we would call ex uh, conversion therapy I you know got prayed over prayed on read all the books went to all the conferences exorcisms, I mean, the works, everything that gets done to try and fix people of being gay, pretty much I went through. And I, I would say that as I was, I was a young adult, but I was a, an adult in that process. So I was a willing participant in that process. I wasn't being dragged into it. I, I truly felt that for me to follow Jesus, for me to be a Christian, I needed to not be gay. That was, that was my understanding at the time. Well, over time, you know, I realized this wasn't changing anything. And so I, I decided that at some point, it, nothing ever happens in a blink of an eye, right? But over time, there was this realization that this thing about me wasn't about to change. And so I needed to either change how I understood God or leave God behind or something, but this wasn't going to change. So what I did was I moved to America. And I always like to say, it's not necessary to move across to a different continent to decide to reconcile your uh, sexual orientation but it worked pretty well for me came over here I was away from church for quite some time because once you've been in a church that is you know so steadfastly against who you are as a person there's no really point in turning up to that same kind of church again because you know I knew what I was going to hear so I didn't go to church for some time um, my partner and I I met my partner Kate and I've been together for 
21 years now. So we're like an old married couple, except not that old, really. But And we moved down to Provincetown in Massachusetts, which, as I like to say, is possibly the gayest place on the planet. I'm sure San Francisco would have an argument, but I think Provincetown might win. And I was really missing church. I was missing a faith community. I was missing worship. And I thought, well, let's see, let's see who's out there and see if there's anywhere I can be. And I found the United Methodist Church, Provincetown United Methodist Church, is where I reconnected with God and was able to start the journey, really, of reconciling my faith and my sexuality. That was about 15 or 16 years ago now. And about eight years ago, I started working for Reconciling Ministries Network as an organizer. And Reconciling Ministries Network is the organization that works to try and help the United Methodist Church. I landed in the United Methodist Church that affirmed who I was and affirmed my relationship with Kate, and it was a safe and wonderful place to land. Not all United Methodist churches are like that. And denominationally, we're on this journey to figure out who we are and what we're going to be. And Reconciling Ministers Network is an organization that is helping, hopefully, helping the church move in the right direction. So for me, landing in this work, as I, I like to say, it makes sense of the whole of the rest of my life. It has allowed me to sort of, you know, use what was a pretty rough period of time going through conversion therapy and, and translate it into something that hopefully is bringing more positive experiences to others and using some of my experience to share with others and so on. In the midst of all that journey, as somebody in their early 50s, I also had my own gender identity journey. And some of you may have noticed that John used uh, they pronouns when referring to me in the introduction. Well, one of the other things I realized about myself was not only was I not straight, but I also was not cisgender. Cisgender is a term used for people who identify with their gender identity that they were assigned at birth. So I was assigned female at birth. Um, but over time, it's become clear to me that um, I don't really fit on a gender binary kind of spectrum. <laughs> um, I like to say there's a gender train and I don't want to be on it. So I use the term agender because really the whole concept of gender, it's it's always been foreign to me, but I've never known it was okay for it to be foreign to me. <laughs> you know, even as a young child, I knew I didn't fit within the norms that were expected. And it's not simply about stereotypes and norms. It's really about how you understand yourself to be in your sort of in your innermost being. So I identify as agender and I use they, them pronouns. And uh, I would say that coming to that later in age means that, you know, I'm on an education journey for myself. I, I still misgender myself because when you've done something, you've referred to yourself a certain way for so many years, it takes a while to re reprogram the brain around it. So, uh, so that's where I am. I'm a 55 year old agender queer person who is a United Methodist, continues to be a follower of Jesus and continues to find hope in the stories of the gospel and in the stories of the way he lived his life and the, the, the kind of community I think he meant when he said to build his church. I think when we get back to that vision of church, then, then, then we're in something that can bring people together, bring people hope let them know that they are beloved, let them know that they are safe, care for them, love them. And that still, that still gets me excited that I'm still, I'm, a, I'm still in for that journey, you know, even when it's rough <laughs> and some days it's rough, but I'm still in for it. So that's how, how did I do? I think, I think that's mostly uh, my story. 
if there are other questions that emerge, I'm happy to answer them, but uh, that's more or less who I am. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your story. You know, I every I've heard you tell it a couple of times. Obviously, at this point, we've known each other yep. for a while. But you know, every time I I feel like I um, find something inspirational in it, and so uh, thank you so much for sharing it with us. I should probably say to the folks who are listening that this episode is is somewhat unique. You know, we on this podcast have a variety of different topics and areas of religion that we explore. Uh, but you may have heard in the news and in other places over the past few years, there's been some interesting stuff happening in the United Methodist Church. Uh, and that's the conversation that Helen referred to. And so we're going to be over the course of the year producing a series of episodes talking about what's going on there. And so it's going to be a very specific look at the microcosm of the United Methodist Church and a little bit about how it reflects on the changing role of the church in the society in society in the United States and various sorts of things like that. You know, we often keep it very broad, but you know, we are all on this podcast, all the major hosts are United Methodist pastors. And so occasionally we'll be doing stuff that's awfully specific to us and the work that we do in the lives that we live. So, um, Helen, I want to ask a little bit about your work at RMN, Reconciling Ministries Network. Can you mm -hmm. dive into that a little bit? Yeah, so let me just give a background on what Reconciling Ministries is for those that don't know. So in the United Methodist Church, we introduced language into the Book of Discipline, which is kind of the rule book for the church in 1972 that introduced this idea that uh, those who practice homosexuality are incompatible with Christian teaching. So that, like, if you're in the United Methodist word, well, this idea of inc the incompatibility clause is kind of a, a central organizing idea that got started in 1972. And since 1972, and actually before it, but particularly since, there have been groups of people uh, increasingly in number who have been saying this is not okay we need to change this well there are there were several iterations of groups that formed but but by 1984 that the main group was called affirmation and that is still a group that exists and in 1984 the not only had we not managed to remove the bad language consistently new restrictions and new discriminations were added to the book of discipline 1984 General Conference was taking place in Baltimore, in Maryland, and it was pretty clear that another layer of discrimination was going to be added in and that there weren't votes to pre prevent it. So Affirmation formed what's, what was called the Reconciling Congregations Program. So they, they continued their efforts to try and change the denomination, but at the same time realized that what they needed was a grassroots program that could prove that there were United Methodists in churches who didn't want to follow the Book of Discipline and the rules. So they started the Reconciling Congregations program in 1984. As delegates were leaving General Conference, having just voted to increase the discrimination in the Book of Discipline, they were handed an invitation. If you want to be part and your church wants to be part of a network of reconciling congregations, be in touch. So by the end of that year, I think there were about six reconciling six or eight, I don't have the numbers right with me, but six or eight congregations at the end of um, 1984. The Reconciling Congregations Program became Reconciling Ministries Network 
in uh, the year 2000. And we have continued the work of building a grassroots network of congregations and small groups, communities, campus ministries, and now we have regional reconciling communities as well. And the purpose has been and continues to be, can we continue to shift the grassroots, right, of United Methodism through churches and small groups in order to help shift the entire denomination? So my work as an organizer is specifically around helping churches and small groups and regional groups have conversations about what it means to be fully and radically inclusive of LGBTQ people from an intersectional perspective. That's been become an increasing focus for us over the last few years is we the recognition that justice for LGBTQ people cannot be addressed in a vacuum. It has to be addressed around all other areas of injustice that people experience, including especially racial justice, economic injustice, so on. And so that's what I do. I'm my my area is the southeast jurisdiction and I have half of the northeast jurisdiction. So I have 19 annual conferences that I'm responsible for and yeah, it's never a dull day. <laughs> but I think the key the key piece for people to understand is that United Methodist Church is a huge institution. I mean, it's a global church. It's got thousands and thousands of congregations across pretty, maybe not every continent. I don't think we're in Antarctica. We should get there. <laughs> we should. So there's a so, so there's a denominational conversation that continues, and we're in the middle of that right now. But also. Underneath, there's this growing, growing, growing grassroots network of people who are already saying we're done with this discrimination. This is how we want to do church. And really, that's been growing significantly since the uh, February 2019 passing of the traditional plan, which, again, is in the weeds of United Methodism. But let's just say that it took the discrimination and put it on steroids is a summary, <laughs> uh, made it worse. And that's created an exponential growth in uh, if you look at our sort of growth chart, it goes sort of up, 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 up. And then at 2019, it kind of scoots way up the sky. It's, it's a lot. So that's what we're continuing to do, right? We're continuing to try and shift the denomination by continuing to prove that more and more churches and individuals and small groups are committed to a fully inclusive church. And and Helen, I think it's an excellent point that kind of the enactment of the traditional plan within the UMC, uh, within the general conference, and then having it applied to the UMC generally mm-hmm. has really caused a shift, particularly in the United States around, this is not how we want to treat our neighbors. This is not how we want to treat our people. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time, at least on this topic, folks who were kind of in the middle or wishwashy before, like all of a sudden it was like, we can't be in the middle anymore. There is no middle anymore. It's we're going to love people or we're not. Um, hey Brian, as you finish that thought, do you want to give us a brief 30 second overview of how the United Methodist Church is organized and what all this talk about voting is about? Sure. Um, so the United Methodist Church is organized into a uh, series of conferences. So I'm a member of the Virginia Annual Conference, which is a part of the Southeastern jurisdiction. And so every local church is a part of a district, which is a part of a conference, which is part of the jurisdiction. And then there's five jurisdictions in the United States. And then there are what are called central conferences outside of the United States. And all of those 
different conferences get delegates to our general conference, which uh, writes or reauthorizes the Book of Discipline typically once every four years, but we're currently breaking that pattern. So, um, and none of us know what that really means that we don't have a official budget or, or like a set of rules that actually govern us right now um, beyond uh, the 2016 or 2019 version of the discipline, which is unfortunate. Um, so that's how the UMC works. We gather uh, in conferences and we establish how we're gonna live together. And um, unfortunately, uh, at least from my perspective and I would assume from everybody else's perspective, unfortunately, uh, there has been a strong uh, movement amongst more theologically conservative United Methodists that has gained momentum since 1972. And we're really just reached a point where they honestly pushed the middle too far. And now the middle and, and folks who are more progressive are pushing back. And I think that's a lot to do with uh, the root work that reconciling, uh, grassroots work that Reconciling Ministries has been doing for the better part of three decades. So that leads me to kind of an interesting question. Helen, what do you view as the role of the mainline church really in America today? And also, what is reconciliation to you in this context? Wow. Okay. So I'm going to start with the reconciliation question because it brings up something that I discovered um, actually about a year ago. I was asked to write a homily on the word reconciliation. And reconciliation, the, the term reconciling ministers network came from a passage in 2 Corinthians 5, I think it is, which talks about God having given us the ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people together to each other and to God. And when I Googled the term, I was curious that my, for something, some reason in my mind, I'm like, I wonder what the opposite of reconciliation is. So I literally Googled the term opposite of reconciliation in like in speech marks. So you get the exact. And the top thing that comes up in Google, last time I did it, it still did it. There are four words that come up and the fourth word is incompatibility. So the, I was like, I was like, what? <laughs> so, you know, the idea is that Paul tells us in, in the letter to the Corinthians that God's job for us as Christians is to bring people together to each other and to God, right? The reconciliation, reconciling where we have had differences and been pulled apart, all the things that, that the world puts between us, that our job as Christians, uh, as followers as Jesus, is to, is to bring people together to each other and to God, that you can't have together with each other. You can't have together with God if you haven't got together with each other. These two things can't happen separately, right? And so for uh, nearly 50 years next year, built into the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church is something that is literally the opposite of reconciliation by deeming a certain group of people incompatible we set ourselves opposite to what god calls us to to be ministers of, rec of reconciliation so that's what reconciliation means to me is that it's the reconciliation of us to each other and us to god and that we can't have one without the other we can't we can't pretend we're reconciled to god if we don't have true reconciliation with each other Right. And I believe that's primarily what Jesus did, demonstrating his life and his death, was that it was it's worth everything in our lives to bring people together. The people have been pushed out, especially to bring them together, to bring them into community with each other and with God. So that's my 
that's my take on reconciliation. And I do think it's a real core part of what God calls us to. And it's not the easy work, right? This is not the, you know, say a quick prayer and yay, we're done. Uh-uh. <laughs> this is this is a lifetime commitment uh, and it's gritty and it's hard. And so I think for mainline churches right now, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit, so you're going to have to probably tell me to hit the pause button because I could ramble for a while. But we have just been through as a nation, we have just been through uh, the most polarizing I don't know I maybe I'm, I'm a new citizen I actually became a citizen in 2019 so that I could vote <laughs> in 2020 uh, so I'm a new citizen of these United States of America and it seems to me this last season and then we have to go really back before 2016 because the, the seeds of it the roots of it but this determination to split us into two groups you know, this determination to say, these are the evil people, these are the good people. And by the way, it's not just from one side, right? I'm not trying to make it out that one group is saying, uh, these are the, like, I think there is, there is something, and mine might even say, you know, that's, you know, there is something in us, in each of us that wants to, you know, find the people we agree with and, and move away from the people we don't agree with. And that's something that the gospel calls us to move against that, that tendency, right? So in this country, we've had a leader who has really made that like a platform, like uh, that's been the speaking point that, you know, you're, you're with me. And if you're not with me, you're actively working against me and, and therefore you're an enemy. And, and there's been this sort of like rhetoric that has pushed people to extremes. And, this, and that has especially taken root for better or for worse in the Christian church, that there has been an adoption of some streams of Christianity who have lined up entirely behind someone who has made a platform of you're not, you know, splitting people apart. And my feeling is, and by the way, there's great, you might chop this out. So I'll do a pause in case you want to chop this out. But I was, in fact, you may have been, Brian uh, McLaren did a thing on Wild Goose a wild goose meeting where he talked about the uh, the way the authoritarian nature of fundamentalist Christianity set people up to be ready to follow an authoritarian leader, and the dynamics the dynamics of that is interesting. It's worth get, getting a hold of if you didn't listen to it. So we've 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 ended up in a in the Christian world writ large of a portion of the population, a large portion of that population, the majority of that population, lining up behind a leader who is sort of pushing people apart, pushing people apart, my camp, not my camp, you know? And so the mainline churches, this is the intriguing thing to me. I feel as though those who have stayed in mainline churches for the most part have accepted the fact that they are going to be continue to be in relationship with people who don't necessarily agree with them one way or the other because then because the nature of our mainline denominations is that people have kind of committed to a particular path and they know that over time you know the people on that path might not be completely of a like mind but like enough mind to stay together for for, for church purposes and so i personally believe that as we're coming out of that season of that particular leader we're in a new season with a new leader but the roots of what happened over the last four years haven't suddenly miraculously disappeared 
that we're still in a time where it's critically important to continue to bring people together across divides and differences. And in the mainline churches of anywhere else, I'm, I'm, I'm literally trying to think where else, where else are people consistently together where they're not separated into their different perspectives, maybe sports, I don't know. I play pickleball a lot and we don't talk too much politics at the pickleball courts. So I'm probably playing pickleball with people who voted differently from me. And that's cool. But we don't really talk about it much. But in churches, right, we're there to talk about stuff. We're there to have communication and conversation and dialogue. So, so, you know, I wonder if this isn't a moment for us as a mainline denomination, you know, to be part of continuing to try and pull us away from this divisive rhetoric and pull us towards a common table, a common conversation, even even if we don't fully disagree, like, (laughs) sorry, even if we don't fully agree that we can come together and have some conversation and at least agree on some basics, like not doing any harm. (laughs) Like, how can we disagree without doing harm? Is there a way to do that? And in the United Methodist Church right now, you know, we're heading towards a, if you don't believe with the, believe us the same way as us about this, we want to go a different direction. And, you know, I think that's that's all basically, essentially, it's the same conversation. It's, it's, it's can we come together over difference? I do, I am, I have become less tolerant of the idea of, allowing harm to be perpetuated around those common tables or those common conversations, right? So I think we have to be really careful about that. And at the same time, I still think we have to be prepared to put ourselves in that place of coming together across differences and talking and not sort of going off to our corners and just being with the people who agree with us. So I, yeah, uh, I thought was a long answer, wasn't it? But I'm excited about it. What but it's, it a like? it's a great answer. It's a great answer. And before general conference 2019 i can remember having a a serious conversation with major leaders in my uh, former appointment and saying honestly i don't want to leave any of you i don't want any of you to leave the church over what this opinion was because ultimately i think the church's most powerful witness in this season could be showing the world there's a different way to disagree Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's happening, but I I grieve that that we're taking this opportunity and flushing it down the toilet because we just want to break up. Yeah, that's a that's a hard bridge to come to. Uh, Helen, I first I think I first really interacted with you uh, with the Up Rising and Rooted series of trainings that you've been doing, and the the narrative. Uh, practice of that I find really, mm-hmm. really uh, empowering and important. And it kind of goes with my whole thing wanting to be in purposely just putting myself in different groups of people. Um, and the best way I can connect with people, number one is around actual food and conversation over those foods. Um, and, you know, that narrative practice of storytelling and sharing those things has really made a really positive impact for me and the movement here in the Florida annual conference. But I was wondering, you know, what is some of the fruit that you're seeing in those sorts of trainings? You know, I've seen some things, but I was just wondering 
your your take on it and how that is giving you hope for for others yeah thanks garrett so so the roots rising campaign that rmn launched last year is still in really getting going pretty slowly and the reason is partly we're just trying to not load more work on people who are already just like overwhelmed like there's a pandemic out there folks Mm -hmm. so (laughs) we're kind of moving forward but but one of the the one of the goal the main goal really is to is is like i've already said it's the grassroots it's the rolling out it's the increasing number of groups and churches and people having conversations and one of the primary methods for it for putting people into those conversations is the public narrative storytelling model that that you mentioned and so one of the things I think that, that I'm encouraged by is, and we're, again, we're still really at the beginning. Some, some groups have really kind of gone steaming ahead and others are kind of, you know, still moving along a little slower and that's all good. We're moving not as quite fast as we thought we'd be moving either. But it's, it's helping people own their stories and giving them courage to tell their stories and invite people into that, I think, where we see a lot of good happening. So, for example... Um, the Alabama West Florida Conference, which is South Alabama and the panhandle of, of Florida, is a very conservative part of the country. As a uh, method, method, Methodist kind of nerd information, their delegation in 2019 was 100% WCA, right? So there's a fully, strongly conservative leadership around the delegation down there. But we have a group of people who are committed to trying to invite people into conversation. And so this group started and they started inviting others that they knew. And mostly people invite others into what they knew by telling them why they feel passionate about it, right? Telling their story. What is it that makes you feel it's important to encourage other people to join this conversation? It's it's our personal stories, how we got to it. I told my story at the beginning of this, right? Why it's important to me to get here. And every one of us has, you don't have to be gay to have a story. Let's be clear, (laughs) right? Every one of us has a story around, around changing a perspective. I think, I think it's almost universally true in the Southern part of the United States that most people have a story that includes a change of mind. I don't know you, I'm a little generation older than you all. So I don't know if that's still universally true as generation gets younger but I would say for sure in my generation like 50s and above most people's story includes a change of mind component in it like I used to believe this and now I believe this and so that in and of itself is a compelling thing to share with other people so they've been doing that in Alabama Florida they're about to launch an online study of the faithful and inclusive uh, DVD study that was put out um, last year and they're inviting people and they're getting you know not huge numbers but this is Alabama West Florida so they're gradually bringing people in they're discovering along the way you know hey there's a pastor over there they didn't even know about that's been doing their own work in that area and bringing people in and they and finding folks in their circle that are interested in the conversation so and it all comes from a willingness to take the risk. I don't know if you all have read Brene Brown, Braving the Wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Sarah so she talks about, you know, I, I, I can't remember. And actually it came from, um, it came from another, another teacher who's actually a Buddhist teacher and I can't remember the name. So I'm not going to try and butcher it by, by, um, by, by badly describing it, but essentially what it's, what it's about is about being, being, brave enough to 
to name your truth, even in the midst of knowing that from some directions you're going to get pushback that's going to be unpleasant, but at the same time you're going to get um, you're going to get feedback from others who will welcome it, right? So telling our stories in a way that's invitational, that doesn't sort of tell the story and like run away and see if people are going to join, right? But tells our story and stay put, see what happens, see who comes, see who retreats, you know, and even those who retreat, don't write them off, see if there's another layer of story that can can move them in a direction. So uh, they've been doing that in Alabama, Florida, inviting people in. It's slow work, but it's good work. And I, you know, I've, I've said this, and those of you have heard me rattle on in the past, I, that I believe there are people having inclusive thoughts in every single congregation in the United Methodist Church. Well, I would hazard a guess in every single church, even the most conservative churches, there are people sitting in those pews going, at least, I wonder if we're right. Even if they haven't got so far as to say, you know, I'm not comfortable with this, I believe this. Maybe they've got as far as to say, I wonder if we're right. I wonder if this is if this is the way we should be going in, if this is the perspective that's okay. And I think there are people absolutely everywhere. And when those folks hear somebody else tell their story about how they shifted and how, you know, what, what impacted their understanding, and what it doesn't need to be necessarily about LGBTQ people, it can be about, I mean, the bigger conversation right now the more important, I would almost say, the more important conversation right now, the deeply connected conversation is around racial justice. That people are, we've even had groups that have been doing great progress around LGBTQ inclusion. And when the leaders shifted it to looking at LGBTQ inclusion from a more intersectional perspective, um, you know, everything will be going fine. And then suddenly you, 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 know, you start saying that white supremacy is a thing and, you know, heaven help us. The walls come tumbling down, right? So, the 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 conversation about changing our minds and our hearts about things is can can come on all kinds of topics, but they're always moved. People are always moved by hearing people's stories and how they've changed or how they've been impacted. And so, long answer, short question: Tell your stories. Really, it matters every single time. You don't have to do it from a pulpit. You don't have to do it with a microphone. You can literally do it. And I know we're not, not sitting in pews right now because, you know, we don't do that anymore at the moment. But when we are sitting in <laughs> pews, are dangerous. <laughs> you know, it literally means turning to your neighbor and reflecting on something that might have happened this week and saying how, you know, how your perspective has changed on it or how you used to think that and now you think this. It can literally be that that will that will create the crack and the opening to more conversation. So, and, and that continuous dialogue and story sharing is honestly the only way forward. If, if reconciliation is really what the ministry of the church is, that means we can't say we don't need you. Like we can't we can't just do that. That's not who Jesus has called us to be. Not just as you know United Methodists, but as Christians. Mm-hmm. And so resisting that is um, resisting that part of our world that says, yeah, just forget them and just move on isn't necessarily a healthy thing for us to be engaging with. So Helen, I appreciate your perspective on that. Yeah, I just I want to say one thing quickly about harm 
And one thing quickly about people's... So I, I one thing is clear to me is that for LGBTQ people, if you, can't, if you don't feel safe and can't thrive where you are, it's not your job to fix everyone else. The same way it's not the job of people of color to fix white people's racism and white supremacy, right? It's not, the same thing isn't required from all of us in the sense that people's own sense of safety and care and, uh, and stuff is really, really important. So I, for LGBTQ people specifically, I'm saying like, if you can't thrive where you are, if you don't feel safe enough where you are, then by all means go somewhere where you can thrive. But I will say to straight people and allies, I'm like, uh-uh, <laughs> you got to stay in and have this conversation. It mm. may be hard and uncomfortable, but your personal, your own being is not at question here. So you can stay in and do the hard stuff right now. And the other part is that I, I've said for a long time, you know, if you're willing to take my hand and continue a journey with me, then I'll, I'll journey with you. Even if I know you feel differently from me, if you're willing to walk with me together, hand in hand and do it, then I will walk with you. And I think I've, I, I, I still, for me, I still kind of feel that way, but I would also say now there is no room for bringing harm into that. So we have to, we have to, you know, to your point, Brian, like we're not anyone, we're not going to say to anyone, you can't, but what we're going to ask people to say is if you're going to continue this conversation, you have to lay down your weapons, right? There's a line in the sand and we don't require you to change your mind. Like you don't have to change what you believe, but you have to change the impact of what you believe. You have to lay down that which does harm and leave that to one side, leave that, leave that behind and continue the journey with a commitment to not continue harm. And that doesn't mean people have to change their minds straight away, right? Or right. even ever, but they have to be willing to say, recognize that, that this people find harmful and this needs to be set aside. And that is incredibly difficult. I mean, just to do is to, is to recognize our own ability to harm one another if in trying to support our own opinions, but MLK wrote in strength of love, like for thousands of years, Jesus has been telling his disciples to put away their swords and they have not. And that's not just like our actual weapons. Like it's, it's our, it's our own tendencies to harm one another. Hey guys, Sarah's here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry to have missed this conversation. I can't wait to listen to it back. I think Helen might have the loveliest voice of any of our guests that we've had (laughs) so far. I came by it honestly. (laughs) All day. So I'm trying to think of something to contribute to the conversation since I've joined so late. Oh, I'm so tired. Um. It's 10 in the morning. (laughs) It's 11 in the morning. Um. Caffeine. Caffeine. Yeah. Uh, I am currently not drinking coffee and it it is a struggle. (laughs) It is a struggle. I will add you to my prayers. Thank you. Thank you. I produce my caffeine, but I haven't eliminated it. Yeah. Typically, I would say I can do all things <laughs> through caffeine, which strengthens me. <laughs> uh, but I guess now I'm leaning a little bit more on Christ. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, sorry. That's I'm, I'm actually curious. Can I ask you all a question? As of course. The the yeah. So one of the things I'm aware of is that the dynamic of being a spiritual leader, a pastor, adds a layer of I don't want to say complication, but it does add a layer of something. (laughs) 
in this whole in this whole thing. So one of the things I've really tried to encourage clergy to do is to find those that they know, like not to try and convince everybody to, to believe the way you believe, but to find those and nurture and encourage those who you think given more opportunity might become voices in your context. And I'm just wondering, I sometimes wonder if that's an unrealistic thing to ask or or what would be more helpful for someone like me as an organizer who's all got a gung-ho, like put out the rainbow flag, you know, <laughs> talk about queer theology. Like I don't recommend that's probably even a good idea in most <laughs> some churches, right? Queer theology is like about ready bells send some people out the door rapidly. But, you know, what's what's a better, what's a way to, you know, acknowledge that, that, that there are genuine, there are, genuine like challenges in in the in the dynamic of being a pastor and something that encourages like not to just stop with that it's hard but to move into what can be done in the face of hard i'm just curious about what's what you find useful or what you've what you've done as a personal practice or that kind of thing this is going to be a little bit confessional sometimes being a being a woman in a rural Mm. southern church context I feel like I have to negotiate my personality a lot to make me palatable to certain people. And I hate that. And that's something I'm working on. And I think that I can be a very poor ally so much of the time because I'm feeling like I don't want to step on too many toes or the wrong toes because I want to be accepted by these people. And that's not, that's not good. I mean, I'm, I'm a white lady. I have so much privilege. I could, I could be using much better. But for for me, that I can't get up and say things in the pulpit like Black Lives Matter specifically in those words. But I can tell stories about Black Lives Mattering without using those words. And um, the one time after General Conference in February that. I always temper my words and try to coat them in so much sugar. (laughs) But after uh, that general conference 2019 in February, I got up and just, I mean, I, it it was not a good thing. It was not a Christian thing. It was, it, it was anger. And I let that anger out on folks, but I try and I try not to do that. It's, it's just sort of for me about fostering those relationships behind the scenes and then Talk, the, where I get hung up is the proclamation part and the prophetic part. Uh, the relationship part is easy, and that's where I can connect with people who agree with me, who don't agree with me. I just am working on the proclamation part. Yeah, and Helen and Sarah, to your points, both of them kind of combining them together, I think in the pastoral role, the the complication can also be a benefit you know the the job of a pastor is in part you know just loving people and having compassion for them and empathy for them understanding where they're at and also taking on a guiding or teaching role and that's not necessarily throwing down mandates but you know for me at least it's inviting people into the larger sort of conversation around things you know there's so much that often gets preached or presented as a mandate that's really not (laughs) you know it's not 
you know, everything is not an ancient church creed. Everything is not in scripture in the way that people sometimes present it is. So for me, I find that when you're compassionate, when you're empathic, you know, people will seek you out regardless of what their feelings are on the topic and because they trust you and they're willing to have that conversation and they recognize that you are going to be, you know, an honest and caring guide, even if you're flawed (laughs) in some way, because I'm very flawed. Yeah. And whenever I have a personal conversation with a parishioner who's struggling with an issue or especially if they're having a disagreement with somebody or trying to understand how their view of something like um, LBGTQIA plus inclusion, you know, butts up against someone else. I always try to remind people like, and I think Helen made this point earlier, uh, you didn't always believe what you believe now. And you're probably not going to believe that forever. You know, we're all at different points on this journey. And we can have compassion for each other and walk with each other without expecting people to be exactly where we are. And I think for me as well, like very similar to you, Sarah, especially on, you know, topics of race and, and um, issues that affect people of color, but more to the point of the conversation at my first church, small rural Southern church, and they put, you know, the young, the young urban black kid, right, right in the middle of it. And, you know, they expected magic to happen. I don't know uh, what was going on, but regardless around when they first released these plans back in, oh boy, when was that? 20, 2016, 2017, around that time, my church, they're very conservative, were completely upset and confused. And they thought all three of those things were happening tomorrow and all of that. So it was a lot of like coaching and teaching but not a lot of conversation about like my actual opinions until people pointedly asked me and then they got upset with me. So yeah, I think it's strange to be a clergy person. Just like John said, you you exist in the strange space of tension and I help them draft a response to the, the annual conference. Um, but, you know, that reflected them. But at the same time, I said, over and over again, think of another person that thinks, you know, opposite or differently than you and make sure you put language in there that would allow them to exist in this church, even if this statement changes. And I said over and over again, I'm like, I don't agree with this, but that's not my role as clergy. That was, that was a really weird conversation to have. I don't know how you would approach that, (laughs) but like at that point, I think it was just a Holy spirit thing and God just like, kind of coming in and give me those voices of that voice of confidence. Uh, Cause eventually I had to like learn to accept what I said and realize like, you know what, maybe there's a little divine guidance there saying, saying that as, as I kind of walk through that process with them um, and say like, remember those who may receive this in a way that may not be welcoming. Now you have to try extra hard to convince them that they will be loved here based on this that you're going to put out there. So I don't know, I guess more, I think if I received a story like that beforehand, that situation would have been at least a little bit familiar, you know? And uh, yeah, just, I guess for me, narrative is always, always an important thing. So yeah, I like the slow grassroots approach, I guess. (laughs) 
it's the only way. It's like the garden growing, right? It's like we try and force things faster. It doesn't result in fruit that is actually long-standing and good. You know, we have to like the the law of the was it Stephen Covey, the law of the farm, or I don't remember what it's called exactly, but it's essentially like that. It it takes a while, you know, it takes a while to, for this stuff to happen. You can never know exactly what impact your words have had immediately. Like you don't know what the fruit of that, the way you interacted with them around the building in that statement, what seeds might that have planted in those folks? You just don't ever, you, you never know that. I didn't, I had a conversation with somebody uh, probably two or three years ago. It was a, you know, conversation thing. I said like any number of times over and I just found out from somebody the other day who had been really impacted by what I said, I would never have known like it I you know I would have wouldn't have had a clue that there was any impact from it so I think we always have to I think that's part of faith and hope right is that we plant <laughs> we plant the seeds where we can we drop in bits and pieces where we can and and that's our faithfulness that's our faithfulness to do that to to to, to find ways to do that and then the Holy Spirit does what she does and from from my perspective, like I, I serve in a very different context from John and Sarah and Garrett uh, in the past. Um, I've served in more suburban or even urban context where this conversation is more likely to happen and there's more likely to be people of differing opinions. And so I can I can remember at my previous appointment, I was their first pastor who ever publicly said the discipline was wrong on this topic and that it needed to be changed. And I said that in 2016 before general conference 2016 happened. And I was, I had only been there nine months recognizing I come with an awful lot of privilege being a young white cisgender man who's heterosexual, like, and a clergy person. Like that's so much privilege within the United Methodist Church that it's almost disgusting. But that opened a door for other people in my fairly, mo- I'm going to call them a moderate congregation. There are folks on all sides. But it opened the door for people who felt more strongly towards wanting their church to be open to everybody to be able to start saying that too. Because all of a sudden I made that okay. Whereas previously, one of the highly like conservative leaders within the Virginia Annual Conference had been appointed there. And so it was not a safe place for them to be. It was a, gr- it was a great church. I mean, it's still a great church. But it wasn't a safe place to express exactly where you were on this topic or on any topic. And so uh, all of a sudden, there began different conversations, and I had to develop some tools to help people understand what were the plans for General Conference because people wanted to know. Helen, we invited you um, to come to come talk about issues facing the United Methodist Church. And more, I was pleasantly surprised at how well behaved everyone was. Um, so was I. <laughs> and, I remember that. And because um, there were people who severely disagree. And yet they were still willing to be a part of the conversation. And, and a lot of them truly listened. And there is someone in that congregation who came and had a hour long conversation with me about why I believe what I believe. 
And even after they express themselves on how they believed about it, and it, we have totally different opinions, they, they said this, I still want my church to be a place for all people. And I will work for that to be the case. And I was like, from my perspective, like that's, we're on the same page now. Like we may not agree, but we're on the same page. We can, and that means we can continue to have a conversation about how people aren't going to be harmed here and how we can stop that. And ultimately, I think it led the church into a more healthy place. But not everyone has the ability, as John, as John and Sarah and Garrett have talked about, like not everyone has the ability to do that as a clergy person. And, and there have been consequences from making kind of that more open like perspective right away. Um, there are some folks in that church who never talk to me again and never listen to a sermon again. And, and while that, like, that deeply hurts in a way that I can't even fully express. But it's something that I felt like there are people who needed to know that I thought that. Brian, I think you bring up a really good point about how much it hurts clergy when we have uh, these these kinds of, I don't know, we may seem sort of brash or come off like I did that one time as, you know, angry. But, oh man, it really, it hurts when any of your folks, even if they're your most stubborn <laughs> sheep, when they turn away from you, that is that is really painful um, when they end the conversation. Speaking of ending the conversation, <laughs> we typically wrap up by saying one thing that is bringing us joy during this pandemic and these crazy times. So um, I actually have one this week. So before I forget it, <laughs> um, this is going to date the podcast. But yesterday at Publix, I found a king cake with strawberry and cheese in it, and it is delicious. And that is what I'm grateful for. Not particularly deep or theological, but man, it's a little thing sometimes. What about husbands that are obsessed with getting king cake for Mardi Gras? <laughs> I am very glad and grateful for my husband who wanted a king cake. And yes. <laughs> now I want one. <laughs> yeah, we were actually going to try and make a king cake. We had my wife's uh, brother and his wife over and we had all these grand plans for Mardi Gras and it kind of devolved into we bought an angel food cake and some strawberries and we played uh, games for like an hour or so or hours on end. And you're like, all right, it was, it was still good. Still good. <laughs> So that'll that brought me joy. I will I will follow up with food and games. <laughs> I can tell you that pickleball is bringing me joy. I don't know if you all have heard of pickleball, and yes, it it is played by more older people, but there are lots of young people that play it too. Just so as you know, and uh, it's been a lifesaver during uh, the pandemic because it's outside, and to, but you can still do it, and you can actually talk to people. It's amazing, and uh, and it's fun, and I love it. I'm a pickleball evangelist. Awesome. You should try it. <laughs> so, Helen, I have a random anecdote. Uh, pickleball uh, is the fastest growing sport in the United States right now. It does not surprise me. Yes, they they like Dick Sporting Goods and all of these other places. Just they they were sold out of pickleball equipment for the longest time in most of the country because folks had the same kind of feeling you did where they were like let's get outside let's put up a net let's do this thing you know like it's wild to me it's really funny that you bring that up it's great and you can like if you're frustrated you can get in the pad on the morning you go whack it you can like get out all your you know not that i'm sure any of you need that but 
Apparently, that's kind of a good thing. I mean, Helen, we work in local churches. Of course, we (laughs) let some of that out. What's giving me joy right now is I really love the season of Lent. I think it's a time for us to like really look inward and to engage uh, in some spiritual, like do some spiritual work and some healing and some reconciliation work. And I feel like there's a lot of that work to do, um, particularly now on that healing side. Um, Cause uh, it's, it's been a rough year for extroverts. Of which that's the truth. <laughs> I uh, I am like chief among the extroverts, and uh, so of course it's always you know having conversation and all that, but really getting prepared for some healing and um, excited for the journey that we're going to embark on at my local church, and we're starting a whole bunch of new small groups. They're all meeting online because Virginia Conference has some pretty strict restrictions right now, um, so. We are uh, starting those tonight, and I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, King Cake is also bringing me joy this week. (laughs) And somewhat related to that is I've had the opportunity uh, a few times, not nearly enough, but one of our local folks over in Orangeburg runs a MoveNet group where he goes outside and does natural movement exercises in the park. And so we were able to kind of resume that as an exercise thing. I make it like once every other other month typically because it's on a Saturday and often we're preparing for things but um, I've been able to go like once every other month during the pandemic but you know it I'm excited I'm kind of hoping to to go this weekend in fact and get outside in the fresh air and to move around and to vault over things and to climb things and to do all those things that you used to do when you were in kindergarten and first grade and second grade that, you know, people look down on adults for doing, but turn out to be really incredible for your health outcomes. So um, exercise of some kind and king cake to ruin it are my two joy points. But thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us, Helen. Where can people find you if they want to look you up? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so my email is helen at rmnetwork.org. And I actually have a website I haven't looked at for a long time. It's called, I, I actually bought the URL inclusivethoughts.com because inclusive thoughts, people. So if you want to look at some old stuff, inclusivethoughts.com is, uh, is my website. And I have been considering re-upping it. And by the way, that Show Your Work book that I mentioned that I'm reading, um, you all should read it if you haven't read it. It's short, but it's got some really good stuff. And I think what you're doing is that and it might give you some other ideas for that and it's cool i like it so anyway we didn't ask for another book recommendation <laughs> but one anyway awesome well thank you so much for joining us today one more time please like subscribe share do whatever you can we're going to have be having a lot more of these conversations over the course of the coming year and of course our typical random everyday conversations that we have as well we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up So stay tuned and have a great week. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. 
You can follow us on Twitter at LogosishPod as well as on all the other social media. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the stuff we're working on. And check out what we've got going on at the website as well at logosish.com. Have a great week.